Are you ready for good talk? Hello there, Peter Mansbridge here in Toronto. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. And uh, we're ready for a little good talk action today. And as usual, we have lots to talk about. So we'll get we'll get right to it. I, I, I'm going to venture into this first conversation by um, referring to something that I did last night. And I know both of you are constantly making fun of my uh, admiration and at times upsettingness to uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. So I was at the game last night. Big game. But it taught me a huge lesson. So here were the Leafs at the end of the second period. They were down 5 nothing, And they just stank the joint out. I, I was tempted to leave at that point. But I thought, well, we'll see what happens, you know. If they can get two goals in the first five minutes, anything's possible. They got two goals in the first five minutes. Then they got three more. They tied the game. They lost eventually in overtime, but they tied the game. They got five goals in the third period and made it, you know, they got a point out of a game that they were totally run out of the building on. So what was the lesson for me? The lesson it was, as you will know, that you're never really out of it till you're out of time. And now hockey and sport isn't the same as politics, but sometimes you can take from one and use it in the other. So given the summer and the fall that the Liberals had, which was disastrous and we're behind by 20 points, according to most polls, anywhere sort of 18 to 20 points. In the last couple of weeks, something seems to have been happening. It's hard to tell. I haven't been enough polls to really judge it, but the one that has been out has suggested that lead has been... The conservatives have or the liberals has been cut in half. But it's more than numbers. It's more than what's happening in the polls. It's sort of a sense that some of the things that were and still are a problem for the liberals, internal divisions, have been cropping up of late inside the conservative party. So here we're going to try to judge. We'll get to the liberals in a minute and their their issues. But I want to get it started on the conservatives and, and get a sense of just how how serious are these divisions that have cropped up for the Conservatives, at least publicly, in the last little while? Chantel, what uh, what do you want to say on that? I think uh, they stand to become more serious if uh, the trend in the polls starts to go downward and keeps going downward. For sure, the Conservatives have a great parliamentary fall until fall turned to winter a few weeks ago. And they self-inflicted wounds on themselves over the past three weeks uh, that have made them mess up the end of the session. Uh, and and almost all of the, what has happened is has been a result of conservative decisions and Pierre Poilievre's decisions, um, including, for instance, the... Uh, the vote marathon, the promise to ruin Christmas and keep the house tied down. I uh, Credibility matters uh, on all kinds of scores. Mr. Poiliev is now considered, and the polls uh, show that's legitimate, as a prime minister in waiting. The optics on his performance have changed. And at some point, it was inevitable that the focus would shift away from Justin Trudeau, a known quantity with faults and warts and all, to the person that wants to replace him. That shift did happen, possibly early in for the CPC, but still it has been happening over the past three weeks. And Pierre Poilievre and his party have failed to rise to the occasion. I'll give you a couple of examples. They go to policy and they go to politics. Uh, politics first. When you say you're going to tie the house down until Christmas, having said that about working through the summer and having not done it, you need to mean it. I went back to Hansard to check at what time the House of Commons stopped uh, for the night last night, and it looked like it was around 7 p.m. As far as I can tell from looking at today's agenda, which is supposed to be the last day, 
there the house will be rising for the Christmas break until the end of January, and not a moment too soon for many conservatives, by the way, who really want out. But in the process of promising this vote marathon, the Conservative Party ended up voting line by line on a number of issues that will come back to harm them. The striking one is the Canada-Ukraine free trade agreement. And the Conservatives have kept insisting uh, that they didn't want Canada to impose carbon pricing on Ukraine, a sovereign country that has ratified this deal and that, as far as I can tell, is adult enough to decide for itself what it will accept. And they have kept voting against this deal repeatedly in the face of uh, the Ukrainian embassy, uh, the Ukrainian community saying, please stop. One of those line items also went to support military support for Ukraine. The conservatives voted against that uh, in the vote marathon. I suspect that uh, this this kind of um, acharnement against carbon pricing in all its forms has actually mitigated the damage that Justin Trudeau inflicted to himself when he carved out carbon pricing for home eating oil. Uh, in the sense that the, the the conservatives played on this so much and so hard uh, that they managed to turn the lights on their lack of anything that resembles a climate agenda uh, and, and in the process mitigated the damage. So um, Israel, I went through all the question periods that took place this week after Canada voted uh, for a ceasefire resolution at the United Nations. And I could not find, it's always possible that I missed it, but I could not find a single conservative question to the government uh, on the issue, which is kind of striking. It's a, a, a foreign policy issue that has dominated conversations throughout the week. I could go on, but I'm going to let um, my friend those take over from me, except my conclusion is Pierre Poiliev uh, has not yet learned how to take a win. Uh, and in the process, he squanders the capital that he earns uh, on the way out the door. Okay, Bruce, uh, you're on. Well, the problems facing the Conservative Party, uh, Peter, aren't as serious as the ones that have chronically plagued the Toronto Maple Leafs. But they're not nothing. And um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. One is that this version of the Conservative Party, as far as I'm concerned, is not settled work. It's not a stable coalition. It looks more unified than we've seen it in a long time. But anybody that spends any time up close with this Conservative Party knows that there are simmering factional divisions Um they're, you know, p- people who are in that party from the province of Quebec uh, often have a very different point of view on social issues than people from other parts. There are people who who are attracted to the Conservative Party because they like small government and lower taxes and uh, stronger economic focus. And there are people who for whom uh, they, they, they accept that the party doesn't talk about abortion very much, but it's a very important issue to them. So those divisions stay undercover when everybody thinks they're on a roll, when everybody thinks that a win is coming, and when there's a strong leader who knows how to manage those divisions successfully, which I think has been mostly the case for Pierre Poliev. But inevitably, when you get ahead in the polls by 15 points, to Chantal's point, the story is you. The focus is you. That's where everybody's looking for the mess up the bobble, the error, the mistake, and all parties make them, all leaders make them. Uh, but right now, it feels as though the Conservatives, is maybe especially with Pierre Polyev, I don't know him personally, so I don't know if this is really true or not, but if a politician thinks that they're they're so successful because they're so good, and they're so good because they just don't know how to make a mistake, they're that clever, they're that... Um, adept. They're so fluent in explaining their policies. And if you look at Pierre Polyev some days, he does look like that guy who thinks he can't make a mistake because he's that talented. He's kind of the Wayne Gretzky uh, of uh, modern Canadian politics or something like that. Um, But 
but they have made mistakes. And, and I think that some of those mistakes, you hear the rumors pointing the finger at Andrew Scheer uh, as the House leader. Um, you know, I think the only thing, um, the only good thing about Andrew Scheer being the House leader for the Conservatives is he's not the leader leader. Um, but this whole notion that they were going to kind of block everything until they got their way on carbon pricing, which they could never have achieved anyway, even if they had done the organizational work to get that filibuster right, which they didn't, which is what a lot of people are blaming Andrew Scheer for, uh, kind of set themselves up for failure on that and a distraction away from what, what I think. I agree with Chantal. I think that when the conservatives were saying, ax the tax, it's raising the cost of everything. I think they were on a bit of a winning roll there. Uh, they made some progress in convincing people I think incorrectly that for very many people, their cost of living is going up. But I think they highlighted some weaknesses in the policy, especially when they talk about farmers who have no choice but natural gas to dry their onions or, you know, grow their mushrooms or what have you. I think the biggest problem that they've got themselves into because it has it has tapped into the who are we is the position that they've taken on this Canada-Ukraine trade deal. As recently as last night, it seemed, having voted against it twice, they were now slamming the Liberals for not letting them have an opportunity to vote for it before the House rose. It's incoherent, and you can feel in the House of Commons, because I was there the other day, as I mentioned to you, the discomfort on the Conservative benches when the Liberals stand up and say, you're walking away from the fight with Putin. You're turning your cold shoulders to the Ukrainian people. A lot of conservatives don't like that position and they'll be going home after today and licking their wounds and wondering how to get back on, on a more winning track. Give me the a... worst part is they should have had no big wounds to lick over the course of the holidays. But there are decisions looming. Uh, there was an announcement on dental care this week uh, from the government with a schedule for implementation uh, of Big deal for the NDP and part of, of the agreement with the Liberals. To this day, there is no position on it. Uh, Israel, I already mentioned, I scrolled through Mr. Poyev's hyperactive uh, social media feed on X, and I could find nothing uh, there. There is the anti-strike uh, breakers legislation, another concession to the NDP by the Liberals. A debate started yesterday. I read the, the leading conservative uh, MP on the file. He skated his way to having no position. Mr. Poiliev has been courting uh, workers' votes and trying to get them away from the NDP. This legislation obviously uh, has been in place in Quebec, so it's popular with the Quebec MPs. It may be hard to convince caucus to support it, but it will be a problem to not support it. And Bruce, uh, uh, the other structural problem I believe they've bought themselves over the past few months is uh, the capacity of Mr. Poiliev to treat everyone who is not on his side as an enemy, which may be viable and only maybe if you win a majority government. But if you've managed to make enemies out of uh, your fellow opposition leaders, and they certainly have, Pierre Poliev was routinely insulting Jacques Singh and Yves-François Blanchet in the House over a question periods. Uh, you've made enemies in the Senate by treating all the senators who were appointed uh, as independents as sellout to Justin Trudeau. You are going to have a really hard time governing and keeping the House of Commons and your agenda on track unless you win a majority government. And I don't think majority governments are ever in the bag with the number of parties we have on the ballot. But finally, Bruce talks about Pierre Poiliev thinking he's so good he can't make mistakes. It's not just an opinion that Bruce has. It's borne out in fact. And here's my illustration of it. Earlier this week, all conservative members got an email asking them, to pick a new logo uh, for the membership card of the Conservative Party. This is a party that has had a number of distinguished leaders, Stephen Harper, uh, Brian Mulroney, go further in history. It's a success story. The way the email is phrased, you have three options. Pick the one you like best. All three membership cards, think of this. 
feature a picture of Pierre Poilievre. And one picture is eating that apple. Uh, it doesn't have his mouthful. That's kind of nice, but he's sporting sunglasses and he's got the apple as in, look at me, how I crushed that journalist. This is going to be your membership card. The other shows him and his wife, presumably after he won the leadership as they're on a stage. And the third, well, I was looking for words, but I picked a, a, what sounded neutral, a liberation fighter with his fist up in the air, sporting sunglasses. In clear, the Conservative Party is telling its members that it is now a personality cult and that that will be apparent on every membership card. If you have a membership card now, you're going to have one that has the face of the esteemed leader. I don't think that in this country, any mainstream party, provincially or federally, has ever told its members that um, Justin Trudeau is so great or 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 Daniel Smith is so uh, powerful, or Jason Kenney, or Peter Lawhey, that we should forget about what the party is about and its long history to have the picture of the current leader on the membership card. And God help them the inevitable day when Pierre Poilievre will not be popular anymore, because that is what happens to every leading politician. But is it not, is it not the case that in the past that the, the parties have often align themselves in a campaign with their leader that the leader is being kind of upfront on the posters and all that kind of stuff but a membership card i, I mean know. how what's far the can distinction? you go what's the distinction tell me uh, the difference here it amounts to a cult of the personality i think you probably would find cards like that uh, fidel castro probably would have liked to have them uh single parties but a party with a long history the liberals certainly loved Pierre Trudeau for a long, long time, as they did Justin Trudeau. But I don't think the idea of having membership cards with Trudeau's face on it uh, ever made it to a, a vote. Members aren't being asked, well, would you rather have the party logo or Pierre Poilievre? They are being asked, which version of Pierre Poilievre do you want on your membership card? Yeah, I think it's important to, to remember that in his leadership campaign, his slogan was Pierre for PM. It was not Conservative Party for government. It was Pierre for PM. Still is. And, um, still is his logo. Still, still is, right? Yeah. So he's been kind of riding that this is me horse for a good long while. Um, I think I, I'm with Chantal. I think this is a, an interesting thing to try to do with the party to say, we're going to make our paraphernalia be even more about me than is already the case. Why do I think it's potentially problem-ridden? Uh, or why is it maybe riskier than than uh, the people around Pierre Polyev are thinking is this. Um, I think that if uh, Pierre Polyev's best chance at winning the election is an election about Justin Trudeau. I don't think there's any question in my mind about that. I think Justin Trudeau's best chance of winning an election is if it's an election about Pierre Polyev. Um, Pierre Polyev is outpolling uh, Justin Trudeau right now, but it's not like he's super popular. His negatives are the same as his weaknesses. Trudeau's negatives are two times uh, his positives. So Trudeau's definitely in a deficit. And if you just looked at this from a math standpoint, if we ask chat GPT, go back in the history of time, chat GPT robot, and find out whether or not it's better and tell us whether it's better to run against the person who's got twice your negatives. I think we know what the answer would be. So putting doubling down, tripling down on look at me, and I'm looking at these three pictures, and you know, there's like Tom Cruise Apple and sunglasses version of Pierre. It kind of feels a little bit like um uh, if anything goes wrong, these turn into Kendall kind of jokes. They, I wouldn't do it if I was them, uh, which isn't to say that I wouldn't promote him. He's more popular than Aaron O'Toole was. Uh, he's more popular than uh, Andrew Shear was by by quite a bit. Um, and he's playing a rallying role, I think, for, for many voters and certainly within his party. But there should be some cautionary kind of limits. Uh, that parties apply in these situations, especially, as I say, if their best campaign 
opportunity is talking about the other guy rather than theirs. If they if they were convinced or uh, that they were going to win 210 seats, they were sure of it and they were guaranteed it, then this probably makes sense. But nobody's there's no ever, guarantees. There's right? never any guarantee on anything. You just draw more attention to this fellow and all, all that's going to happen inevitably is people sort of spot the things that they don't like. It's it's true for every politician. Just I'll a matter you- of time. I'll give you an example of, of things that can backfire even there if they are on this at first glance really smart things this this um well this lengthy ad that Pierre Poirier put online the 15 minutes about housing issues uh well first to the suspicion of narcissism it's 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 awkward to have the leader of the official opposition stand up in the house of commons and spend part of question period saying did you see me in my uh, infomercial uh as a question as a serious question to the government uh, it's teenagers do that uh when they're trying to kind of woo uh the rest of the class and become more. I love that phrase, you? suspicion of narcissism, by the way. I'm going to take I'm that. Trying, <laughs> I'm trying to be uh, <laughs> moderate on this. But what this infomercial did is that it also opened the door to some very serious, lengthy reporting and fact checking. Probably longer and probably watched by more or read by more people because so many people had seen the video then if he'd only stuck to housing is doubled uh, under Justin Trudeau, and that's why you can't find a home. And some of the people who were rebutting uh, Pierre Poiliev were not rivals. They were experts, economists, some of them of a conservative tendency, pointing out the glaring uh, fake facts that were part and parcel uh, of or the omissions, as in, did we forget there was a pandemic and it cost a lot of money to try to see people through it. So every strategy has a downside. And Bruce is right that uh, Pierre Poiliev is popular among conservatives, but he is asking people who did not vote for the conservatives to vote for him. And I'm not sure that he is um, the answer to the dreams of people who in the past voted for Jacques Mitzing or Yves-François Blanchet or even Justin Trudeau. Uh, A lot of people... I'm going to draw a strange parallel. Uh, in Quebec, François Legault has been going down. The party that has been coming up on top is the Parti Québécois. I don't believe the Parti Québécois is back on top because its leader, who is very efficient and young, is impressing voters to that degree. I think it's coming back on top because people figure the Parti Québécois is a safe option. They've been in government in the past. They have a record. How bad can they be? I think a lot of voters who are thinking of leaving the Liberals or the NDP and think it's time for change are looking at the Conservatives and not the NDP because the Conservatives have a record in government. How bad can they be? They are not doing it because, oh, Pierre Poiliev is such a magnet. I want this picture in my living room. Uh, And and the more they play Pierre Poiliev at the expense of the party, the more they are diminishing the baggage of experience that they do bring to their quest to become the government. All right. I want to, uh, we're going to move on here. Um, I want to get at the liberals too, but I want to put a little meat on the bone. If there is any meat for the bone on my original question, which Will is- the Leafs win the Stanley Cup? No. <laughs> I will save that for another day. No, the original question was, are, are these issues that you're raising that could potentially haunt the Conservative Party, are they coming forward in any uh, kind of um, uh, movement within the caucus or within the party of saying, wait a minute, this is not the route we want to go, uh, and and why are we going this way? Is, is there any dissension within the ranks that is visible or audible at this point? More audible, yes, but uh, I don't think it's reached that uh, point many conservative MPs will tell you that so far they feel hostage to uh, that 10-point lead in voting intentions. I think the Conservative Party, by its nature, has a little bit more... uh, I I don't want to say it's a more cantankerous party, 
but cantankerousness is more common within the conservative tent than it is uh, maybe in the liberal tent. And so I think it's more audible inside their conversation. I don't think it's particularly visible or audible outside, although on the Canada-Ukraine free trade agreement, you could see it um, piercing the tent, coming out, people being frustrated. You could see in the way the Conservatives were trying to turn the tables on the Liberals yesterday that they were not happy with their strategy and their positioning. And so it's a it's a less... Um, I don't think that Mr. Polyev is heading into the Christmas break with a party feeling as good as it was two weeks ago. Um, so that's probably as far as I would go on that. Let's just keep in mind that it is the party that... Um you know, put the knife in the back of its last two leaders with only letting them run one one election campaign. So when they do start to move, they do move. That's but neither, not to, it neither of, more than the Leafs do. Let's agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> neither of those guys had a 10-point lead on the Liberals. No, so. that, that's right. Although they did have a bit of a lead, a little lead. And they ended yes, up with but, the lead. They ended but up it with didn't the lead translate, at the end of the But it didn't voting. translate into seats. No, uh, so right. this, this, I think Poiliev is putting a more attractive proposition despite all the bumps of the past few weeks. Okay. Pete, I, I, I know you want to, sorry, I, I know you want to move on, Pete, but the, the one other thing, Chantal is listing the way in which Mr. Poiliev has approached his opposition leaders and and that, that, was, that, that is a bill, if you're hostile to everybody, it's a bill that comes due at some point. And I just wanted to put a pin in the, he spent so much of his political capital, a mining dislike for the media. Uh, that too is a bill that comes due. When things go a little sideways for you, um, you know, people are people. It's not that journalists will be biased against you, but they will be happy to report on the things that go bump in the night for you. And uh, I think that, if I were the conservatives and I were having a, a serious inside discussion about what did we learn about the year that was, one of the things I would probably t take a beat on is, um, do we need to be beating on journalists as much as we have been? Or does it just feel good and and delight our base, but there's some risk associated with it? Uh, you got to be careful when some journalists who are considered or you know columnists who are considered to the right of center on their uh, on their writings and their opinions are also part of the criticism on the way things are working. You got to, you obviously got to be careful of that. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break and come back and we'll talk about the situation on the on the liberal side of the house and the question of, uh, uh, of whether there's you know open dissension on some of the policies, especially the Middle East one. We'll get back to that right after this. Welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here with Chantelle Hebert and Bruce Anderson. This is good talk for this Friday. Um, the second last one before the Christmas break. The holiday season is upon us. Uh, you're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our YouTube channel. Whatever platform you have chosen to be a part of this program, we're happy to have you with us. Okay. Um, Topic two, and it's it's the liberals. After spending all that time on the conservatives, let's get back to where we've talked about the liberals a number of times, quite a few times actually, in the last couple of months, most weeks really, um, in terms of the problems they've had. This issue of whether there's a, a split in the party um, over the whole Middle East situation and Israel-Hamas and the new position that the uh, the government has uh, put itself forward in terms of using the C word, ceasefire, humanitarian ceasefire, they call it. Um, and and the, the clear open um, criticism of that move by some liberal MPs. How, how serious is that? How concerned uh, do you think the uh, prime minister is about the uh, divisions that have been exposed within the party? I, well, I exposed is probably too strong a word. We've kind of known about them all along, where the where the dividing line was in the in the caucus. But nevertheless, more obvious this week than uh, in the past. Uh, who wants to start this one? I think that the um, the 
Prime Minister and his team wisely decided that on this issue, they are going to give MPs a lot of leeway to express discomfort uh, or, or unhappiness on both sides. Uh, and they have come rightly to the realization that there will not be a consensus position that works for everyone on the issue. Uh, there has never been in my time a foreign policy issue that has played out uh, and raised so much passions on the ground in, in, among voters. Uh, and that is a fact of life. So there was no surprise that the MPs who spoke this week, many of them from the Jewish community or from writings that have a strong Jewish community, would have been at the microphone expressing dismay at the fact that Canada voted with 152 other countries for a resolution calling for a ceasefire uh, that did not mention Hamas and the need to eradicate Hamas. Where I think uh, what struck me this week was more the dog that didn't bark uh, than the sounds that I heard. And why the dog that didn't bark in the night? Because if Justin Trudeau had uh, had this government support the notion of a ceasefire three weeks ago, there would have been resignations from his caucus. And that has not happened. Why it has not happened is because the situation is has evolved. It is not just that Canada is flipped for reasons that are domestic. It is that the international community is increasingly critical, people say of Israel, but I will say of the current government of Israel. Uh, and I found it fascinating that when that vote took place, only ten, nine countries stood with Israel in the United Nations. Uh, and one of those was the United States, the only G7 country to vote with Israel on this. Others abstained, like the UK. Others, like France and Japan, voted uh, like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, etc. But what happened afterwards was not that Joe Biden went and took a microphone and said, I will always support Israel. It was that the president of the United States went to a microphone and said, the Netanyahu government is overreaching uh, and it is losing the support of the international community. In clear, the Canadian vote and New Zealand and Australia illustrated what Joe Biden was trying to tell the Netanyahu government. It, it, it was more of a supportive move of what the U.S. wants than a difference of opinion between the United States and Canada on the need for a ceasefire. And I think those Joe Biden remarks probably helped Justin Trudeau to, yes, uh, see the obvious and predictable discontent uh, within his caucus, but to avoid uh, breaks uh, and resignations. Where the story goes from here, I, we live, you know, in, in kind of a bubble, but there were massive demonstrations in Israel this week uh, calling on for Netanyahu to step down and someone else to take over uh, this operation. So it's not just uh, that suddenly we've picked a different side. It is that the international community is terribly concerned about how uh, the current government of Israel is handling this. And I suspect... Uh, that the international community, by and large, and I mean allies of Israel, like the United States, would like regime change in Jerusalem. Bruce? Uh, yeah, I'm going to just echo, I think, what Chantal's been saying about the uh, Middle East situation as it relates to the uh, unity in the Liberal Party, and then kind of switch to some other factors that I've been paying attention to, attention to that relate to that. I, I do think that the Liberals have realized that the there are two uh, legitimate ways for people to observe this situation. Um, both can be true at the same time. Hamas is evil. Uh, Netanyahu is a huge problem. And this is the consensus that I think has been developing around the rest of the world, observing this situation and trying to figure out how to advocate for a solution is to recognize that those are two um inoperable choices uh in a way i mean if you're if you're in the west and you're looking for peace you're looking for a two-state solution and netanyahu is not uh, going to be an advocate for that and so 
standing up beside him is something that made Joe Biden uncomfortable enough to say, I've placed the vote this way, but uh, don't count on it uh, as an expression of unbridled support. So I think that the this debate has moved towards a place where it won't make everybody happy every day, obviously. The huge, 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 huge uh, devastating issues there. But the politics of it are starting to settle out a bit. On the liberals, uh, the question of how unified are the liberals, I think that I don't find that the divisions are that sharp on this issue right now. They were, they have been. The uh, feelings do run deep, but I, I think the liberals were faced with an existential political risk for most of the last couple of months. Uh, it became more and more apparent to them that they were losing support. They were losing touch with Canadians, not just about this issue, but about many issues. They felt like they were losing the climate battle. They felt like they'd been losing the cost of living battle. They found they felt like they couldn't really even muster an effective political argument against Pierre Polyev. Um, they've got a little bit more spring in their step uh, right now. There's a couple of reasons for it, and it's building a little bit of a sense of uh, unity. I don't think was ever really a problem, but I do think that confidence uh, in their prospects had become a problem. And I wouldn't say it's completely recovered, not by any stretch of the imagination. They're still miles behind where they would need to be. But I think they feel that on the housing issue, they at least have a voice uh, in that fight and a, and a fellow who can put the idea forward that makes sense to middle ground Canadians who are saying, let's not just hurl kind of insults and, and anger and slogans. Let's find some actual solutions. And I think Sean Fraser has done a pretty good job of that. I think on the climate issue, they've decided that the right answer isn't to always try to explain their policies, their complex web of policies and exactly how carbon price works, but really to look across the aisle and say their choice is let the planet burn. And the more they get into that zone of saying, let's talk about the other folks, then they're using that 10-point disadvantage as a fulcrum. And they need to do more of that, whether it's on, on housing or on climate or on other issues. They need to be firing back. And I saw more of that in the last two weeks than I've seen in the last two years. And uh, that's given them a sense that they should stick together rather than kind of look inward and try to figure out who's responsible for the depths of the challenges that they have. You know, this time of year, uh, as it is every year, um, brings forward this kind of parade of year-end interviews with uh, the Prime Minister and the other leaders, uh, and you know, <laughs> the endless panels of which we've all been a part of uh, over the years. Um, the first couple of the Prime Minister's interviews have been out, and they, they seem somewhat similar to what you talked about last week, Chantal, in the, uh, uh, the Prime Minister's visit with the editorial board of the of La Presse. There seems to be this um, clear signal from him, more, more than just a perfunctory, that he's staying, that he's in for the, the long haul. Is that what we're witnessing here? He's also doing uh, in the process uh, because now there has been one with Canadian press that I, mm -hmm. I'm aware of. I think there may have been others. He's also doing something that uh, Bruce has mentioned in the sense that he is starting to say out loud what I've suspected all along, that he is staying in no small part because Pierre Poiliev is a threat to his legacy and to a progressive agenda. Uh, he's not saying the Conservatives. He's saying Pierre Poiliev. So he is shifting the attention um, on Pierre Poiliev, I was listening to Bruce and I thought, this is really interesting. Over the past four months, the Liberals have kind of moved away from telling us how great they are, which didn't work for them at all, but which they kept doing. And it was quite irritating to hear. Um, and while the official opposition has moved to telling people how, how they are great, uh, which doesn't really work for them either, by the way, because I believe uh, voters want to see some sense of humility. They equate it with a capacity to listen uh, and to, to react to changing realities. Uh, and, and I think the liberals, yes, have gotten better at that. It's a tone issue. They don't sound as superior as you don't understand how fortunate you are that we have your backs. 
instead of of the 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 tone that they are using now, which works better for them. I think those interviews, I'm guessing La Presse was kind of a, a, a you know a rehearsal for the interviews. It's a good setting to do it in because uh, Quebec is a different environment where the prime minister is not as much of a lightning rod uh, than other areas of the country. But I, I think those Iran interviews so far have worked well because he's not pleading. He's just saying, I'm, you know, this is who I am and this is why I'm staying. And I think a lot of voters uh, do connect with fears about what happens to a progressive agenda. Uh, and, and, you know, I've watched the last episode on the climate change exchange with uh, the government coming up with a, a cap on emissions from the oil industry which was the approach that Canada used for acid rain, by the way. It went to emissions, and it did work. It's a solution that is not a cap on production. Uh, it's considered, it came out as a milder version of what could have come out. The conservatives immediately ruled it out. And I looked and I thought the liberals are slowly but surely putting middle-of-the-road proposals to the conservatives ensuring that by the time we get to the election, there will be nothing that Pierre Poilievre will not have rejected uh, when it comes to a climate agenda. I saw that as a sign that there is some uh, intelligence left on uh, Planet Liberal. It's, um, you know, the, the, there's, no, the, there's no doubt that in the, uh, the summer, by the end of the summer, there was a lot of uneasiness inside the Liberal party uh, concerning the continued leadership of, of Justin Trudeau. Um, do you think his, uh, Bruce, do you think his comments, uh, which appear to be starting to come out here now in these year-end things, um, rest well inside that, that Liberal caucus? Uh, are they still a little uneasy about I don't think that question is going to ever be fully resolved until we're a lot closer to election day. I think that for the moment, um, I I think that most of those Liberal caucus members anyway, and probably by extension, those party members who are paying attention to politics will look at what's been going on in the, uh, in the, in the dynamic of question period and in the margins of, you know, news stories about politics in the last couple of weeks, and they'll take some, some heart. Um, but the reason they'll take heart has more to do with the idea that this is a party that has not completely lost the ability to be political, to take the fight to the other guys, to deliver uh, an argument in a sentence, in a few blunt words, rather than with a kind of a lexicon of bureaucratic terminology that has been their uh, their habit for the last several years. And without what Chantal referred to as that tone problem of liberals who always seem to want to tell you a little bit about how you should live your life differently to better align with their values rather than they're there as servants of your interest. They want to know what you think. They want to help you with what you do, you need. And that's really been a zone that they've kind of vacated a lot. Uh, and, uh, and Pierre Polyev has stepped into. As to whether or not Justin Trudeau can find that way to position himself as an as, as, as the right leader of the Liberal Party, for those who have doubts about that, uh, I, I think people will be looking at these interviews carefully. If I'm him, I, I probably want to do more to emphasize the strength of my front bench. Everybody says that almost all the time, but this is one of those times where there's a lot of talent on that front bench. Um, and I, when I was in question period the other day, uh, Mr. Trudeau was there for the first few questions, and he answered them relatively well, but they sounded like him, except for when he did one thing, where he went through a litany of when we, you know, when we put on the table funding for childcare, what did the conservatives do? And his entire backbench said, voted against. And he went through a bunch of those things. It was a little bit of a call and response thing. And so he is able to kind of light up a little bit, that argument against the conservatives when he wants to do it. But once he left, I watched the rest of that front bench actually kind of raise their game as individuals. It's a little bit like, okay, it's on us now. And then you start to see them say, well, our, you know, the conservative policy has let it burn. The, the conservative policy has let Putin win. And the more they get into that mode, 
uh, the easier it will be uh, for Mr. Trudeau, I think, to to maintain his leadership and not have people question it because it'll look like a fighting force that has a chance of winning again. It also helps that the, the liberals who think that they should have a new leader do not have what they could perceive as a safe harbor. Uh, to get them out of the election storm. They may think this guy is interesting or this person would be great, but there is absolutely no Paul Martin standing in the wings, uh, allowing people to dream of, of, of safer tomorrows. There are all untested quantities, including, for instance, Mark Carney, who's never been uh, elected for a day in his life. So that does help uh, Justin Trudeau, the, the absence just behind the shoulder of someone who looks uh, bigger and more likely to do better than him. And there are, in politics, no guaranteed safe harbors with anyone <laughs> or any plan. So, Ask Paul uh, Martin. Yeah, we, we, we know that. Um, I should also say that if, uh, if a new poll comes out tomorrow and it shows the 19 or 20-point lead again, then just delete this podcast from, <laughs> from today's <laughs> bank. But it's a... A lot of interesting stuff here. I, you know, it it may at some point turn into an exciting situation, whichever way it ends up going. But it may become um, it may become a lot more interesting on the Canadian political front. Okay, we have time for our last break, and then a quick uh, thought on a policy that a lot of people are waiting for. That's right after this. Welcome back. Final segment of Good Talk for this week. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Chantel and Bruce are here. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Okay, so there was been a lot of talk for the last, well, ever since the deal between the NDP and the Liberals to keep things going about a pharmacare plan. And there was expectation that it was going to happen probably this month or maybe even last month. It didn't happen. And uh, this week, they've announced a deal between the Liberals and the NDP that they will extend the deadline on Pharmacare till what? Is it March? I think it's end of March. 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 Yep. Um, what do we take from that? They say, we're, you know, we're working, we're working well together, trying to come up with the right plan. Uh, should we buy that? Should we believe that? They are, but um, I, I'll, first of all, challenge your um your sense that a lot of people are sitting on the edge of their seats uh, waiting for this pharmacare policy. I think that is obvious to both the Liberals and the NDP. But the NDP has put a lot of political capital um, on the table on this. Uh, its members uh, find uh, the pharmacare idea um, totally compelling. Uh, again, provincial buy-in, which is essential, is not... Uh, been easy to find, uh, and a lot of people who have private insurance or who have provincial plans that work for them are not really uh, interested in, in the program. So where I where I think we're going first, I think the schedule we saw this week for dental care, allowing people, in case you're interested, 87 and over, to register for it. Um, that's a low cost option. Those first few months, how many? Canadians are 87 and over have filed an income tax report last year, make less than $90,000 and want dental care tomorrow, uh, basically. But it's a slow rollout, but I believe the rollout, which will expand between now and July 1st, was meant to give the NDP something to take home because they were not getting pharmacare. But I also believe that the pushback to March means that at best, this parliament may leave behind a framework for a possible pharmacare program. Uh, but that is as far as it will go. Bruce? Yeah, I think that that's right. I, I guess I feel as well that if the NDP were really being kind of rational and they went back to the drawing board and they said, if we could design this parliament and our approach to it over again, would we make this single payer universal pharmacare uh, one of the most central things that we keep on having to come back to talk about to make the to leave the impression that we're putting pressure on the liberals, and I and I don't think that they would because first of all the price tag is enormous for this, the demand is minuscule, uh, 
And so if you're the Liberals, there's no end of reasons not to do this. Uh, your deficit numbers are not great. Um, and if between now and the next budget, uh, the NDP pushed them to a situation where they're supposed to commit to something that'll look like it'll cost $40 billion, that's only a world of trouble for the Liberals. They're not going to do it, in my view, because they're because it would be stupid politically to do it. Um, and the program would never actually happen to Chantal's point about the most that would happen would be, there'd be a framework, the conservatives would get into office or the liberals would come back and still not do it because the economics don't make sense for them, for the country, given the fiscal situation and the political demand is really not there. The other reason why the NDP might rethink it is that if you're looking at the world from the standpoint of what's the perfect socially progressive policy mix to have, maybe policies like this feel more appealing. But if you look at union members, which is a really big part of the uh, of the NDP coalition, the very large majority of those have programs that are better uh, programs from a pharmacare standpoint than this one would be. So yeah, I just don't I don't see it being a a matter of great public interest. Okay, we're we're out of time. Chantel, I know Chantel maybe? had her hand up, but, uh, we, uh, we, we, but I do think the problem also is that if you measure the success of the NDP by pharmacare, they are self-effacing uh, their own gains, significant gains on the anti-strike uh, breaking legislation or the expansion of Medicare to dental care. Uh, it, they, they are, the metrics shows lack of progress on something when they have achieved tremendous progress on two files that the NDP could only dream of five years ago. All right. We will be back next week with our uh, kind of year-end show. The, uh, the MPs, the politicians, they're out of here, out of Ottawa for the next six weeks, and a lot of people will say hallelujah to that. We'll see what the break does because stories still come up and good talk will still be here on uh, Fridays. We'll take Christmas week off, but uh, that'll be it. All right. Thank you, Chantel. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, we'll talk to you again in a week's time. I'm Peter. Thanks, Bruce. Podcast Santa. We get a week off. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, not, not next how week, generous. Scrooge is, is at yeah, work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you again. Talk to you next week. Ooh.